Hi everyone, it's Joel B here. This is the podcast for my ethics classes. If you're one of my students, welcome. We're just going to do some review on equality and inequality. If you're not one of my students and you're just passing by because you're interested in the topic, it's great to have you. lot of inequality in the world. And people raise all sorts of concerns and arguments about inequality and argue that we we need to alleviate various forms of inequality. And one thing that we need to do at the outset of these discussions is get clear on what we're talking about. So in class, we spent a little while talking about different kinds of concerns people have about inequality, which really leads us to ask, what kind of inequalities are you talking about? So when someone says something like, I think inequality is problematic, the important question to ask is, inequality of what? What kind of inequality do you find morally problematic? And we drew a distinction between three kinds of inequality or three kinds of equality that people might be concerned about and historically have been concerned about. So here are the three, formal equality, equality of opportunity, and outcome equality. So what is formal equality? Roughly, formal equality is equality under the law. It is where people are treated as equals according to policy and according to legislation. So to think about an example, think about voting rights. Up until 1920, women in the United States did not have voting rights. Uh, Voting rights were reserved really for men, and for most of American history, it was reserved for wealthy white men, land-owning white men. And through ongoing legislation and transformation, more and more men really were included into that camp. It wasn't just the wealthy land-owning white men who acquired voting rights. Other men could acquire these rights, but women were largely excluded. And through ongoing agitation and activism, Women acquired suffrage, as it's put, in 1920 through the 19th Amendment. And so prior to that, you might have argued that there was formal inequality, that the law did not extend equality between all of its citizens in the way it should have. So there was a form of partiality at the level of legislation. But upon reaching um, universal suffrage, the United States enhanced its formal equality at one level, namely with respect to voting. So when you have a society that treats people equally at various levels, treats them equally under law, you have formal equality. And this is usually going to involve some form of anti-discrimination legislation as well. Now, formal equality really matters. It's very, very important. And the United States has a very checkered history when it comes to formal equality. Um, I I would say probably for most of its history, it has been formally unequal. But there are other forms of equality and inequality that people really care about once we start moving away from formal equality. Think about equality of opportunity and outcome equality. So let's focus on equality of opportunity. This is one that people really care about 
And I'm just going to say at the outset that I, I think it's really tricky defining what equality of opportunity is. Let me just give you a rough, very, very rough characterization of it. I think that roughly equality of opportunity is where people in a group have the same or roughly the same opportunities for achieving important social outcomes. They have roughly the same opportunities available to them to achieve important social outcomes. They may not choose to avail themselves of those opportunities, but the opportunities are there. The resources are there. Now, things get tricky when we start talking about what sorts of important social goods we have in mind. So if you and I have very different opportunities of acquiring homes, does that mean we don't have equality of opportunity? I don't know. It just depends. Equality of opportunity for what? I think that's the really tricky thing. It's like, what what kind of opportunities are we talking about? Are we talking about opportunities to acquire homes, to acquire good jobs, to get an education, to participate in democracy? And, and probably a lot of people want to say all of it. Like that's uh, Quality of opportunity is referring to our opportunity of doing all those really important social things. So I, I won't try to flesh out the exact details of it, but it is, it is a type of equality that I think at an intuitive level seems to matter. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm thinking about mm, political participation and democratic participation. And you, you might think that like it doesn't matter what decisions you make across your life, it's, it's good that you have similar opportunities as everyone else to participate in democracy. Um, maybe with some exceptions, but, but again, so this goes back to this really tricky question. When we talk about equality of opportunity, what kind of opportunities are we talking about? What kind of opportunities should be equal? Another thing that gets tricky is this across any person's life, their opportunities change a lot. And, you know, a person who's really young is going to have very different opportunities than a person who's middle-aged versus a person who's older. And so you might think that what we care about is equality of opportunity for different life stages and wanting people in similar life stages to have similar opportunities to thrive and live meaningful lives, or maybe to have similar opportunities to benefit from the state, um, to participate in democracy, um, to avail themselves of resources like an education, um, of welfare, and so on. So maybe that's kind of what equality of opportunity is, is, is about. Let's talk about another kind. Outcome equality is roughly where you have equality in outcome, for example, roughly the same income uh, amongst people or roughly the same wealth amongst people and so on. So you could have a society that has formal equality, equality of opportunity, but does not have outcome equality. In fact, it's, pr it's probably going to be very difficult to ever achieve um, outcome equality with respect to income and wealth. And, and some people think that it, it wouldn't be good to have that sort of equality. We need, we need a society that allows people to get ahead to some degree, to, that incentivizes uh, certain forms of innovation and productivity. And that just means that some people are going to have more revenue coming in or they're going to be able to build more wealth and so on. So I think a lot of people allow that um, economic inequality of the outcome sort is is permissible within a certain range. The question is, how far should that gap go? In any case, there are these three types of inequality or three types of equality, formal equality, equality of opportunity, and outcome equality. 
And we can have philosophical debates about each one of them. And I think in this class, we've been thinking a lot about outcome equality and different forms of outcome inequality. And like I, like, like we said in class, like there are different kinds of um, outcome inequalities that a lot of us don't find morally concerning. Um, a lot of us are dissimilar in our heights. So there's a lot of inequality when it comes to height. Some people are very short, some people are very tall. We don't find that particularly morally concerning. But when it comes to economic matters, it's a different issue. And so we need to really figure out when does difference in these economic outcomes amount to something morally objectionable? In other words, when is economic inequality, economic outcome inequality or distributive inequality morally concerning. So that's really what I want to focus on in the remainder of this episode. The question fundamentally is what if anything is wrong with inequality? What is wrong with inequality? And we're going to we're going to focus mostly on economic inequality here um, and in particular outcome inequality. If you recall there are at least there are at least three things that might make an inequality morally objectionable. And I'm going to try to use this language of morally objectionable inequalities. The first is the cause of the inequality. An inequality can be morally objectionable because of what causes it. If the cause is itself morally objectionable, then that can make the inequality that results from it morally objectionable. Simple example. If you and I end up with different incomes, there's an inequality there. Suppose the the reason we have different incomes is because I experienced discrimination and you did not. You were favored through bias where I was disfavored because of bias. And you might think that if that's all that explains the inequality between us, then that inequality is morally objectionable. In a world where something else explains the inequality, say our, our you know difference in work ethic or something like that, maybe the inequality wouldn't be morally objectionable. But in the world or the scenario where I am discriminated against and that causes the inequality, then the inequality sort of inherits some of the objectionable status. So that's a simple example, but we tried talking in class about some more complex examples of this. So recall the black-white wealth gap. The median black wealth is 10% of the median white wealth, or put differently, the median white wealth is 10 times greater than the median black wealth. That is a massive disparity. I mean, it's just, it's just very, very massive. You might find that inequality objectionable for a number of reasons. Here's one reason to find it objectionable. It was caused by morally objectionable, problematic, and racist things. So as we've learned, the federal government was involved for large portions of the 20th century in efforts that were intended to segregate black Americans from white Americans. And in the process, what they did is they invested and enfranchised white Americans into home ownership, but largely excluded black Americans from this very important form of wealth accumulation. In the United States, owning a home is one of the most important forms of wealth accumulation, and it's one of the most important forms of intergenerational wealth accumulation. And you have, for close to half of the 20th century, the Federal Housing Administration and the Homeowners Loan Corporation, these are federal agencies, preventing predominantly black neighborhoods or even neighborhoods where there is some 
proportion of black residents from acquiring good mortgage loans, from refinancing and getting these federally subsidized loans so that they can keep their house. Um, On top of that, the Federal Housing Administration subsidized the creation of all white suburbs across almost every metropolitan city in the United States. These were suburbs that were explicitly intended for whites, and the Federal Housing Administration required that contractors put restrictive clauses in the deeds of these homes, saying that they could not be sold to African Americans. And so you have the creation of these really nice suburban neighborhoods where white families are able to move in, start accumulating wealth uh, through owning a home, able to transfer a lot of that wealth to their kids. And these are the sorts of investments that allow you to invest into college, into business startups, and so on. And black Americans were not afforded the same opportunities. In fact, they were routinely blocked from having these opportunities. And that, to a large extent, probably explains the black-white wealth gap that we experience today. Other things may have contributed to some degree, but it's, I think, very hard to deny when you look at the history that the explicitly racist and discriminatory practices of the federal government played a large role in all of this. So the cause of the black-white wealth gap is morally objectionable, racist in particular, and therefore the inequality that resulted from that is itself morally objectionable. The idea is that you, if you have something morally concerning going into the formation of the inequality, then the inequality that comes out is morally objectionable. Second, an inequality can be morally objectionable not because of what caused it, but because of what it causes. In other words, a, an inequality can be morally objectionable because of its consequences. So we need to think of some simple examples here. A lot of people think that uh, massive inequalities in wealth and income can undermine democracy, can undermine political representation. So think about the United States. In the United States, one way to advocate for political reform and one way to advocate for a particular candidate is to fund their campaign or to fund certain political initiatives and political platforms. And so money makes politics happen in in most of the world, but for sure in the United States. A lot of politicians, in order for their campaigns to succeed, require immense amounts of investment. And in in some ways, they're beholden to their investors. And so some of the wealthiest in the United States are able to invest the most into political campaigning, into political lobbying, lobbying for certain legislation, and so on. In order to get these things to to happen, you need money. And so who has the most authority to influence political outcomes? It's going to be the wealthiest. This means that those who are not as wealthy, the least well-off, have less political say-so because they have less dollars to use to advocate for these political changes, their wallet speaks less. And so the inequality is not itself problematic. It's not problematic because of what caused it. Rather, this inequality of wealth can produce a problematic outcome, namely the undermining of democracy and the undermining of political fairness, you might say. 
that's one example. Another example that sometimes people is, is sometimes pointed to is um, the rise of authoritarian leaders. So there's some research suggesting that in countries with growing inequality, there is a heightened sense of distrust of the elites and a heightened sense that the system is not fair for the least well-off, that the wealthiest are, are, are unjustly advantaged by the, this system. And as a result, people become restless with the growing inequality and they start to advocate for and support more authoritarian, totalitarian-like leaders who are going to advocate for them in a way that has grit, in a way that um, challenges the elites and challenges the most wealthy and the most advantaged who have a lot of power in society. So there's some research suggesting that. If you want to read more about that, there's a nice book by um, Polzner, and I forget his colleague's name, but they wrote a book called Reclaiming Populism. Relatedly, some people think that inequalities in wealth and income can lead to a deterioration of social respect and social dignity. So when massive inequalities start to arise, people can start to feel a sense of inferiority or superiority. There can be a sense of looking down on others. Um, economic inequality could lead to caste-like systems where those who are the least well-off economically are treated like they're inferior. They're treated like they're subordinates. There's a degrading mentality. It's corrosive to this kind of relational e equality that some people talk about. So relational equality roughly is this, this kind of um, equal regard for all people, irrespective of their background, irrespective of where they come from. It's this this conferral of dignity and humanity to all people. And so some people argue that economic inequality corrodes relational equality. Put differently, economic inequality can threaten our, our sense of um, respect. It can threaten our giving of dignity to all people. It can create... Um, all sorts of tensions and um, subordination in society. Okay, finally, some people argue that an inequality can be morally objectionable not because of what causes it, not because of what it can cause, but just because of what it is in and of itself. In other words, it can be inherently or intrinsically bad. When we say that an inequality is inherently bad, we're saying that it's it's bad for reasons that don't have to do with what it causes or what causes it. There are some philosophers who think that economic inequalities are inherently bad when they are the result of factors that are outside of people's control. When, for example, I am worse off economically than you, for no fault of my own. These philosophers think that that is in inherently bad. It's inherently morally objectionable that I am worse off for no fault of my own. It might not be inherently morally objectionable if I'm worse off because I made some poor decisions or because I just have a preference to live a less uh, economically well-off life. Maybe I want to go into a profession that doesn't pay as well. I just really enjoy it. And I'm okay with that decision. I'm going to be made 
less well-off, but that's, that's my choice. But a lot of philosophers think that when you are made less well-off for no fault of your own, you can't be blamed for it, then that's morally objectionable. A lot of them will say it's unfair. I won't weigh in on that debate, but the point is that there are some types of inequalities that arguably are inherently morally problematic. One, one inequality that is, I think, it's less controversial that it's inherently problematic is it's one that it, it's not quite an e- economic inequality. Go back to like dignity and respect, relational equality. Arguably, in a society where we do not see each other as equals, where we do not treat each other as equals, where we have disdain and disrespect and disregard for each other and how we interact with each other, where we look down on each other and have bias and animosity, a society with that type of inequality is inherently morally problematic. Sure, that type of society is also going to lead to some really problematic outcomes. It's probably going to lead to all sorts of economic outcomes. There's going to be disadvantaging and discrimination Um, possibly even violence. But the inequality is not merely problematic because of what it leads to. I think at an intuitive level, the fact that we don't relate with each other on on terms of equality, we don't treat each other as equals, we don't think each other as equals, is itself inherently morally problematic. That's less controversial, I think. What's more controversial is whether there are any economic inequalities that are inherently morally problematic. All right, in summary... There are three types of equality that we talk about in debates about equality, formal equality, equality of opportunity, and outcome or distributive equality. Next, once we've kind of figured out what kind of equality we're talking about, we need to ask this really interesting question, what makes an inequality morally objectionable? And there are at least three answers you might give to that. The cause of an inequality can make it morally objectionable. The consequences of an inequality can make it objectionable. And finally, some argue that an inequality can just be inherently objectionable. All right. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.